Three Days in 63, The Unsolved Murder of Francis Bullock by Greg Clark, Part 14, Chapter 40, D.A.R. Way down in Mexico, you went out to find a doctor and you never came back. I would have gone out after you, but I didn't feel like letting my head get blown off. From Brownsville Girl by Bob Dylan and Sam Shepard. August 25th, 2013. Did you see the sky out there? The youngest looking woman in the room asked while placing her purse down beside the chair she was simultaneously pulling out from the table. Oh yes, another woman replied while shifting her water glass to the left with her left hand and lifting her cell phone with her right. I stopped and took a picture of it. You did, another woman seated to Greg's right, obviously 20 years their senior, asked in a facetious tone. I thought you hated those phones, Mary Lou. I do, but my grandkids insist that I have one. I've got pretty handy with it. Well, well, the sarcastic old woman said before lifting her own water glass to her heavily painted lips. It was beautiful. A fourth woman joined in, poking a cell phone of her own in the process. I haven't seen colors like that in 40 years. The woman who raised the question in the first place elaborated, me and Guy were down in Mexico. We were staying in this awful little motel. He started having pains in his side. I told him I'd get my head shot off if I was to go out by myself and try to find a doctor. We just barely made it back into Texas when he had to be admitted to the hospital. His appendix was about burst. The woman finished with four rhythmic taps of her fingers on the wooden table before her. And the sarcastic old woman who'd feigned being impressed at her peers' technological advancement earlier asked, offering further evidence that her hateful tone to Mary Lou hadn't been pointed, but was one she most likely wore like a cool shawl about her shoulders all the time. Oh, I just remember how pretty the sunrise was down there in Mexico. That's all I was saying. The old woman with the cherry red lips rolled her eyes, then plunged her hand deep into her purse, which she had sitting directly in front of her on the table. Momentarily, she pulled out what appeared to be a plush green case and slid the glasses she'd been wearing into it. One by one, they arrived. Franklin, North Carolina's chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, one by one, Greg watched them and he listened. One of Greg's favorite things to do and had been since he was a young boy was to watch and listen to people, especially elderly people, as their expressions and often their words were no longer veiled in the pleasantries and learned niceties of youth. Their authenticity intrigued him. It was almost 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning at the Sunset Restaurant. Greg had been asked to be the guest speaker at the DAR meeting and he was actually very excited. Didn't bother him in the least to meet with the large group of elderly ladies so early in the morning. In fact, it wasn't his first time doing so. He'd spoken to their group once before, wherein he'd garnered several tidbits of history he'd since been using on his tours. He hoped the current meeting would offer up similar, if not better, fodder. Well, let's get started, a heavy-set elderly woman wearing a light yellow blouse said as she slowly stood to her feet. Betty, if you'll lead us off with the pledge, and D, if you'll offer grace after that, we'll go ahead and eat so we can get to Greg. We'll have the business meeting after he's finished in case he needs to go. 
After everyone rose to their feet, Greg included, the Pledge of Allegiance and a tight little prayer was said, then an hour passed, an hour filled with laughter, eye rolls, whispers, jokes, spilled coffee, and the shuffling and clinking of plates, glasses, and silverware. When all the plates, bread baskets, and glasses were cleared away, when the steam from freshly poured coffee was rising all over the room, and when the door was closed between the rather small private room the DAR had reserved and the rest of the noisy restaurant, Greg was introduced to kind and generous applause. After introducing himself to some and reintroducing himself to most, Greg began what would prove to be an hour discussion of new yet historical information that he'd been presenting in various forms throughout the year on his tours. To the crowd of women before him that ranged in age from their 60s to their early 90s, the information was either old hat or brand new, depending upon whether they were Franklin natives or not. And after multiple handshakes, some gentle hugs, and several quick conversations, just after Greg had arrived earlier, he'd learned that many were not. Greg's topics ranged from grand old Opry stars to witches, Walt Disney and Frank James to local legends and American presidents. The women, whether they knew the material or not, sat with warm smiles and often excited eyes. They'd offer up simple phrases of awe in the breaks between lines like, they, or, well, I'll be, or, if I had to never. Greg told of how in the 1940s and 50s, the Grand Old Opry stars used to perform at Franklin's second courthouse, which had been built in the 1870s, had been torn down in the 1970s. He painted for his audience Franklin's main street in the late 1800s when the entire street would be cordoned off so as to host boxing matches. He told the ghost story of the postmaster that still haunts the old post office on Franklin's main street. He got a myriad of responses when he told the ladies of Lawyer and Mrs. McCoy and their son Croft of how they ran from their home in the dead of night in the 1920s never to return due to a supernatural creature they all three claimed crawled through the center of their front room snarling and growling. Greg received proud, knowing head nods from the women when he talked of Franklin's own Lassie Kelly and how she'd been one of North Carolina's first female lawyers, the yeoman to the Secretary of the Navy during World War I, and much more. He talked of old sheriffs and outlaws, particularly of Sheriff William Huffman Higdon and the Willie McMahon hanging of 1884. Greg taught many of the ladies that President Grover Cleveland and Franklin's own Copy Elias a very famous Southern lawyer, had been fast friends in the closing years of the 19th century. He told of how the governor of North Carolina, James Lowry Robinson, had lived in a fine mansion on Franklin's Main Street in the late 1800s. The ladies squalled when they learned that Walt Disney had made a movie in Franklin in 1955, but mostly because Disney had tried and failed to buy portions of the town. Lord, we could be sitting by Space Mountain right now, one particularly short woman called out. All the ladies laughed. Greg told of when Frank James and Cole Younger of the famous James Younger game came to the area in 1904 with the Wild West Company. He talked of famous Franklin witches like Vice Borden, Ann Cameron, Aunt Mahalia, Granny Beck, and more. He told the ladies the story of the Spanish Fort Flag, a Confederate battle flag that had been hidden away in Alabama after a Union victory 
preventing the Union soldiers from taking it as a spoil. And they giggled and wiggled in their seats when he told of how the flag was later raised up on a Franklin flagpole at a 1911 Confederate veteran reunion to a full salute. He talked to the great Franklin scientist Silas McDowell and the apples he learned to grow out of season, creating in turn quite a name for himself in the science community in the early 1800s. Greg talked of Confederate Major Nathan P. Rankin and how he'd started so many schools in Franklin. But when Greg mentioned another Franklin legend, Tom Rickman, a locally renowned storekeep who'd been dead for years, one exceedingly thin woman asked Greg if he knew the story of Mr. Rickman and Elena Carlson. When Greg smiled and said that he didn't, the waif-like lady took the wheel, and Greg was glad she did. The story was wonderful. In summary, a very young woman from Peru had moved to Franklin many years before. She spoke no English. She knew no one. She learned the English language by sitting around a pot-bellied stove in Rickman's old country store. She'd gone on to be an educator in Franklin. Greg knew her well, but had no idea of how she'd learned to speak the language. After the lank elderly lady's addition, time was getting slim, and Greg could see some of the ladies checking their watches, their phones. Greg fully intended on wrapping up and easing on out was caught off guard when a lovely older woman with snow-white hair sitting near the door that separated the private room from the main floor asked, Do we not get anything about Miss Bullet, Greg? The room grew absolutely silent upon her words. No one spoke. All eyes, if they'd been looking at watches, phones, coffee mugs, or each other, beat a path to Greg's eyes. Well, we can talk about whatever you want, but I... Assumed you'd like to get to your business meeting. I figured you'd had enough of me already, Greg said with a genial smile. Oh, business hell, one of the ladies replied. Multiple women began speaking at once. Greg listened as the women who'd invited him in the first place hushed everyone, then looked his way. We have the room. Nobody's booked after us. If you need to go, that's perfectly fine, but we wouldn't mind hearing a little about it. Would we, ladies? A unanimous no filled the room. And once again, the ladies grew quiet. I know some of you were at the presentations we did last month, Greg said. I don't want to beat a dead horse, so I wasn't there. I couldn't make it, Mary Lou piped up. Greg knew Mary Lou from their joint affiliation with the Macon County Historical Museum. They were both on the board. I want to hear it all, she further exclaimed. Lord, that would take all day, Mary Lou, Greg said before taking a sip of cold coffee. Well, we don't have all day, woman remarked. Tell us something. Greg was just about to begin a summary of the case when Mary Lou piped up again. My dogs went crazy that night. What's that? Greg replied. I said my dogs went crazy that night. I lived right across the street from Frankie. I remember that night like it was yesterday. Instantly, Greg became an audience member, a voyeur. And not unlike Greg, all of the others turned toward Mary Lou as well, giving her 100% of their attention. With bold words and animated gestures, Mary Lou relived the night. She told of how all of her windows had been open because she'd been painting, how her husband wasn't home. She told of how she sat bolt upright in bed that night of the 26th when her dogs outside started barking, as she put it, to beat the band. Barely had the new tale teller finished entertaining the room when another woman spoke out. I was with Wayne and Helen when the police came to talk with them after the murder. I remember Helen was so scared, she locked everything up. 
None of us had ever locked up anything. We ever once changed after that night, didn't we? Whether the woman's question had been meant as rhetorical or not, it was answered over and over across the room with resounding acquiescence. What I remember was how shook up little Eddie Stanfield was, another woman added. Old Bryce questioned him because he used to walk past Frankie's house on his way to work. Sweet little thing. Killed him just being questioned. I was working at the hospital. Yet another woman leapt on board the train of stories. I was working with Dr. Ed Angel's nurse. We got to talking about Miss Bullock. And she said she'd never forget the autopsy and what Dr. Angel had said to her. Said he leaned over to her and whispered, This is the work of a woman. The spotlight had shifted. And for the next 40 minutes, Greg never felt its glow, but he was overjoyed. For what unfolded before him was better than anything he could have dreamed up for the day. One by one, and story by story, the ladies told of their suppositions, their theories, where they'd been that night, or where they'd been when they heard of the murder. Between them, they knew the actions, and often the exact words, of almost every neighbor that had been questioned in the days after the murder, and not one of them hesitated in sharing. I know in my gut it was him. I know many a lawman said to many people that they could go lay their hands on the killer's shoulder anytime they wanted, but they'd never work again if they did, and like as not they'd be killed too. It was in her eyes till she died. I could see in her eyes what she'd done. It was that IRS agent, sure as the world. The ladies went on and on. Well, I heard from, well, down at Conley's Barbershop, they said that Mama told me to my face that weren't hardly anybody at her funeral, poor thing. I'm afraid she knew something, or she wouldn't have done it there. A woman to Greg's left mumbled. Who wouldn't have done what where, Mary Lou inquired. Oh, Ella Dean, out at Woodlawn, the lady whispered. Oh, yeah, I've heard that, Mary Lou said while popping the cap off of a tuba chapstick. What about Woodlawn? Greg asked the lady to his left. The lady, acting for all the world like the consummate southern belle, whispered, The Suicide. Chapter 41, We're Live 19, September 1st, 2013. I knew it. I knew they'd be the ones with the stories to tell, Dale boasted from Little Rock. You're right, I got more from those ladies than I'd gotten from a lot of people. And I hadn't even entertained the notion of gathering information about Mrs. Bullock from them. I'd simply been asked to tell some stories and introduce what Paulette and I had created with Where Shadows Walk. Like so many times before, that's just the direction the needle on the compass went. It's what they wanted to talk about. Well, what about Woodlawn and the suicide, Greg? Nobody elaborated, Tony requested. Crazy stuff, man, I'll tell you. There were two sisters that lived beside Miss Bullock. After the murder, their brother told the police that they should interview them, his sisters, due to how close they lived. He thought they may have heard or seen something. Well, they hadn't heard or seen anything. 24 years later, in 1987, the brother to the ladies who lived so near Miss Bullock received a visit from the Franklin Police Department. Seems his wife had driven her car out to Woodlawn Cemetery, wrapped the inside of the car with 
plastic wrap and shot herself in the heart. My God, is there no end to the death in this story? Why did she do it? Tony asked. Nobody knows. She nor her husband or her sisters had ever been considered suspects in any way, and I had never heard about it till last week. I've, of course, looked it up since, but it just seems to be another tragedy, just another awful tragedy. Well, let's lighten the mood. Let's discuss the elephant in the room, Dumbo more specifically, Tony said. If not but for a simple twist of fate, you'd be living in Disney World, both men laughed. That's right. Greg answered back, it was close. If Dale wasn't Googling as fast as you're talking, I swear to you, Greg, I wouldn't have believed half of what you've told us tonight, but damn, if it don't all check out. Walt Disney, Grover Cleveland, Grand Old Opry, Franklin, North Carolina must be the coolest small town in America. Not to mention the final surrender of the Civil War, all the witches and ghosts. <laughs> we like to think so, Greg replied. And, and... Dale broke back in. I just found that Greg's little haunted hideaway town in Appalachia is home to the only Scottish tartan museum outside of Scotland. We've got about four museums in Franklin, Greg replied, taking the baton in a full sprint with the freshly introduced topic. Better late than never, he thought. We've got the Scottish Tartan Museum, the Jim and Mineral Museum. That's, uh, that's one housed in an 1850 jail. We've got a classic toy museum, the Macon County Historical Museum, it's right off of Town Square. And that's where I do lots of my presentations, and we go inside there on the tour some nights. That's where you did the Francis Bullock presentations, right? Tony asked. It is. And that's where you met with the lady with all the information about the coroner, right? That's right. Other than the lady wanting to talk with you privately, did anything ghostly happen when you were telling Miss Bullock's story this last July? Anything spooky? Dale asked with a, like a little boy. Going by the images on Dale's tablet, it seems like the place should be filled with ghosts. Oh, it's a very haunted location. We've got incredible stories we tell there, but I can't think of anything otherworldly that happened during or after the presentations. However, last Christmas, we most certainly had some spooky stuff go down. Paulette and I had decided to do a, a Ghosts of Christmas Past presentation which consisted of hot drinks, cookies, stories, and I ended with a recitation. A recitation? You know, like Porter Wagner or Red Sylvine used to do, Teddy Bear, Phantom 309, you know, spoken word songs. Oh, yeah. So you wrote it about ghosts? Yes and no. It's kind of hard to explain. I created a character, a fictional old hobo. I used his third-person perspective to tell a Christmas story, meant to be nostalgic and festive while still keeping with the theme of hauntings. We have a a man here in Franklin that goes by the nickname of Rocky. He's a painter, but he's also pretty much homeless. He spends as many nights in jail as he spends out. And the thought hit me when I was mentally constructing this old hobo that Rocky would be a fitting gatekeeper to the other side. Kind of like Sharon the ferryman to Hades who carries the souls of the recently deceased across the river Styx and Acheron. So yes, it is about ghosts, but not in the traditional ghost story sense. It's more about the... the metaphorical spirit of an American small town told by a lost soul coming home. Anyway, back to the spooky. That night, Pauletta decided to leave a lot of the glassware at the museum because the presentation had run so late. We were going to run by the next day and pick it all up. Mind you, we were the last to leave and lock up 
and seeing as it was a weekend, we were the first to open the museum back up the next day. When we opened the museum the next day, we found that our punch bowl had shattered, and in the strangest way, a large framed picture that had hung on the wall for years had somehow fallen and destroyed it. Man, glass was everywhere. The picture that fell was a black and white image of the museum's first curator, a stern-looking old lady. Best part was that the picture had been hanging by a wire on its back. And the wire wasn't broken, nor was the nail out of the wall. Someone or something would have had to lift the framed picture off of its nail in order for it to have fallen as it did. Old gal didn't want all that Christmas frivolity about the place, did she? Dale joked. <laughs> Maybe not. I've never even uh, been to anything like that, but I can imagine that Christmas presentation would have been great, Tony joined in. Did sound warm and cozy, didn't it? Dale said, sounding for all the world like he was wrapping his arms around himself and shaking as he said it due to a noticeable quiver in his voice. I'd have loved to have heard that recitation, Tony broke in again. It was fun to write. It took some time, though. Greg, we're almost out of time. You're killing the both of us here. Now, we've got to have you back on to talk about Walpurgis Night and Death Signs and Banshees and I don't know what all else. Stop it, man, stop it. We'd stay up all night talking about that if we could. Like as not the two of us will stay up the rest of the night talking about it anyway. Okay, Greg, Dale believes he's got it solved. But we'll save that for the very end. Dale wouldn't have it any other way, would you, Dale? No, sir. I got this thing wrapped up, Dale proudly announced. Well, before we let Dale close this cold case, we have a very few minutes left. Greg, do you have anything else you'd like to say? Anything else you can recall that might help Dale out? Uh, I don't need help, Dale shouted. As I said, I've got this thing wrapped up. Guys, I've actually been jotting down a few things as we've been talking tonight. Things that I didn't know if we'd get to or not. Things that I've remembered as we were talking. But since we're almost out of time, Tony interrupted abruptly. No, no, tell us. Okay, I'll try to make it quick. Remember Janice that met me at the library? The wealth of information? Well, an old woman contacted her recently. She said her husband had been a doctor during the time of the murder. They'd lived near Frankie. Anyway, she called Janice and asked her to meet her at the Franklin Golf Course. Janice agreed and met her there. The old woman had told Janice that her husband had begun acting strangely shortly after Miss Bullock's murder. She said one day she followed him because he'd taken a bag from their garage and had walked up into the woods with it. She said she watched, concealed by trees, her husband bury whatever was in the bag. However, when she attempted to show Janice where her husband had buried the bag so many years before, it turns out the highway had been built over it. Greg was cut short. Unbelievable! Actually, why did I say that? That fits perfectly with this case, Dale remarked. It's absolutely believable. Go on. <laughs> I won't interrupt again. Hush it, boy, or you'll never get your chance to solve it. Let the man speak, Tony overlapped Dale's closing words apologetically. Don't worry about it, Greg reassured the DJs. Another thing I'd pinned down concerned the old chief of police, Ernie Caswell. It was told to me by some of his family members that right before Chief Caswell died about 15 years ago, he instructed his wife to burn anything in their home that had the name Francis Bullock on it. He didn't want his family involved in that hell in any way after he was gone. The case had haunted him his entire career. Like my dad, Officer Southards and Chief Baines, Chief Caswell was a fine man, 
but that case almost killed him. Maybe it did. Next, I was recently asked to speak at a historic store in Franklin called the Rickman Store. It's an 1895 store that ran full steam until the 1990s, has since been bought and preserved by a preservation group. Anyway, you don't need to hear about all that. Since its purchase and preservation, the old store hosts musicians and storytellers, speakers and such. I was asked back in June to come and read an excerpt from the written portion of the presentation I was going to deliver the following month on Francis Bullock at Franklin's Historical Museum. I was excited and honored to have been asked. Anyway, there was a packed house. That excited me further. I had barely introduced myself and my topic when an elderly man jumped to his feet in the back row of folding chairs and shouted, She was a drug dealer! What? Dale blurted out. Settle down, boy, Tony reprimanded. Let the man speak. I was in shock. I'd expected to read from the excerpt and maybe, maybe field some questions at the end. So since the gentleman remained silent and standing after his unexpected outburst, I had to address his wild exclamation while all eyes in the house remained fixed on him. It was tense. My first emotion after the shock wore off was anger at having been interrupted, but I knew that would seem unprofessional, so I chose to smile. I told the older, older gentleman about the old chief of police, C.D. Baines, having had similar concerns. This seemed to only anger him further. That's when he spoke again. She'd bring him back from cities she'd go to. Sold him from her house at night. Sold him to my cousin. I know for a fact. My smile faded because at that point he was messing up my presentation. He nearly tipped his chair over when he spun around and walked out the door. He didn't stay for the reading? Tony queried. I think that was the most shocking part to everyone. He'd obviously come with the sole intention of relaying his message. And when he'd said what he'd come to say, he was gone. No one had ever laid eyes on him before. The room was filled with locals, some elderly, who'd lived in Franklin their entire lives, and he was a stranger to them all. What else? Uh, what else? Guys, I, I swear I'm hurrying here. No, please, don't stop, Tony reassured his guest. If you recall, all of the evidence was lost early on. Well, it came back. Someone anonymously returned the evidence in and around 1995, wrapped in plain brown wrapping paper. Shoot, guys, I've got way too much to tell here. I can't talk about it all, and I'd be skipping around all over the place, decade to decade, so I'll end my part with what we do best, a little ghost story. How about that? Yeah, let's do that. We've got about five minutes, Tony instructed. A lady came to us, not unlike so many others have recently. She wanted to tell us about her experience at Frankie's house. She said she had been, uh, she and her cleaning crew had been hired to clean Frankie's house in 1978. She remembered that the family member who'd hired her said the family was going to have a reunion of some kind in the house. Anyway, she said her crew knew exactly nothing about the house, but they hadn't been there 20 minutes when each one of them started complaining about how the house felt. They told her the house didn't want them in it. She said uh, she felt the same exact way, but told them it had to be cleaned because they'd been paid already. After a few more minutes, she told me she had to let the others go outside. Some were even getting sick to their stomachs. She said she tried to hurry and finish on her own. She told me she just finished the kitchen and was just about to clean the living room when every picture hanging on every wall downstairs turned right or left a few inches. She said she just stood there with her mouth agape. She then told me that there was a large framed map of Macon County, our county, hanging over a couch 
that, and that it went sailing off the wall and shattered into a million little pieces. She said glass went absolutely everywhere. Maybe that's what happened to your punch bowl at the museum, Dale said. <laughs> Maybe, Greg laughed. Maybe so. All right, Greg, Dale's going to solve this case in the two and a half minutes we've got left. Can you do it, old boy? Tony asked enthusiastically. Can I do it? I've been sleuthing this one since Greg signed on tonight, Dale replied. Well, go, Tony commanded. Okay, okay. Just like the ladies believed at the DAR meeting, I believe it was a woman that killed Miss Bullock. The stab wounds were too low, too personal, but I think several of the suspects had a hand in it. The two boys in the rain. I believe they were watching Frankie's house because they were going to break in that night. They knew she had valuables inside. I believe when Gene and Sonny drove away, leaving them walking in the rain, that they doubled back and did break in. I believe it was their footprints Gene saw in the mud outside of Frankie's window. And I believe they were the ones that took the screen out of the window. Did they kill her? No. I believe they were hiding in her house when she came home that night. I believe they watched the murder take place and couldn't say or do anything because of how they'd gotten into the house. That's why the one was raising hell at the hospital a few nights later. And that's why he eventually came home to commit suicide. Next, I believe the coroner cleaned up the mess, like the, like the lady that came to Greg with all the details believed. He was the one with the tools and the know-how. Why? Because whoever killed her had sway and power enough, or their family and friends had power enough to make sure their tracks were covered. Next, the town drunk. I believe he aided in moving her body downstairs at the garage for those three days, hence the blood droplets along the wall leading down to the garage, and I believe he helped move her body back. I believe he did bury the knife, but he didn't kill her. As far as the actual crime scene investigation, I believe it was botched simply because of untrained early 1960s police work and nothing more. Next, I believe, like I've already stated, that someone with some serious connections saw to it that all of the photographs and evidence went missing right away. Was it someone associated with JFK, Hollywood, Secret Service, the mob, drug running? I don't think so. I think all of that is interesting, but most likely purely coincidental. Next, I believe that the coroner was a decent person. I believe guilt was eating him up, and he was just about to talk, going by what he did at the Woodlawn Cemetery. I believe he was silenced that night because the whole house of cards would have fallen with his confession. I believe Frankie knew her killer but felt uncomfortable enough not to go about her normal routine that night. Normally, she would have pulled the car into the garage, but she didn't. Normally, she would have never left onions permeate inside her nice new car, but she did. That tells me she pulled up to her house. The killer was either on her porch or in her yard. She deviated from her normal routine and asked him to come inside. Two chairs were pulled out. Two empty wine glasses were sitting there. That tells me there was a discussion of some sort. Finally, and probably the spookiest part, whoever had enough care, concern, clout, sway, say, connection, or influence to ensure such a brutal murder remained unsolved for decades is most likely still around, else there never would have been the threatening phone calls in the 1980s the pull-string dolls of the 1990s, or the suspicious deaths that seemed to still be occurring, and done, Dale panted, acting out of breath. My turn, Tony said, not boisterous, but sure of himself. Whoa, 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 what? You haven't written one thing down all night, Dale shouted. It's all up here, bucko, Tony said, his response slathered in laughter. Greg assumed Tony had tapped his temple with his index finger as he'd said it. Well... This I gotta hear, Dale said in a self-satisfied voice that Greg imagined came accompanied by crossed arms and a lean-back chair on Dale's part. It was not a woman at all. 
The lawn man had nothing to do with it, hence his banging on her door demanding back pay for work that Saturday she lay dead in her home. The coroner did die of a heart attack, like his cause of death proclaimed. The timing of his death was nothing but pure coincidence. Miss Bullock's brother's fury with her was just that, sibling fury. In fact, none of the classic suspects had anything to do with the killing. No lawn man, no coroner, no boys in the rain, no angry females, no sitting presidents, no mob, no Hollywood celebrities. If you'd been listening closely, you would have heard the killer's name spoken loud and clear, and from none other than the slain woman herself. Well, go on, Mr. Holmes, Dale said when Tony paused in his narrative. Earlier in Greg's narrative, Tony continued, we learned that two teenage boys had garnered a very unusual um, Ouija board message. 316 in the window, to be precise. We learned that Greg himself saw the Bible in the window that very night. Turn to the book of John. We learned also that the name John in the upper corner of the page had been crudely underlined like a child might have done it. Instead of a child, I see an unsteady hand, a dead hand, the hand of a ghost doing its best. Later on in the story, we learned that the boy who'd captured the message on the board went and took the Bible, but not before actually seeing Miss Bullock's apparition inside her home, a home she died in 30 years earlier. Don't you see? Frankie was telling the boys, showing the boys the name of her killer, John Peterson. In Greg's story, we find that Frankie's friends and family are concerned with lies, or maybe a better way to say it would be half-truths Frankie is perpetuating about a man she's dating. All of Frankie's other suitors were known to people, but this man, this, mis this mystery man, the only one to remain a mystery to this day, has never been decoded, one might say. So in the heat of all the passion, the fear, the ones with decent motive, this one man, this man of mystery remained unchecked and overlooked, forcing Frankie's spirit for the past 50 years to attempt to connect through the Bible, the late night visits to her home, the piggyback ride of Greg's father, and more. John Peterson, whoever that is, killed Miss Frances Bullock on July 26, 1963. Tony triumphantly ended like a Deep South trial lawyer. And a pissed off lady, Dale mumbled like a child determined to get his last word in. Both men gently laughed at Dale's snappy insertion. We've got 20 seconds, Tony said like a game show host. Greg, we can't thank you enough for coming on tonight. We can't wait to get to Franklin for some of your tours. To say it's been amazing would be an understatement, and we will definitely be asking you back. Yeah, yeah, Dale hollered from somewhere behind. We've got to get you back on to talk about Walpurgis Night and Banshees. Thanks, guys. It's been great. Greg finished and hung up the phone. Chapter 42 a very southern thing. I could never figure out why you chose that particular place to meet. From Brownsville Girl by Bob Dylan and Sam Shepard. September 2nd, 2013, midnight. As Greg ended his call with Little Rock, the stillness of his home was all but shocking. Much of the same feeling as trying to steady oneself after having disembarked from a roller coaster when the world is getting its act back together beneath your feet and fast. His children were asleep. Pauletta, though he knew she always tried to troop her through for the gritty details, was also asleep on her favorite couch. She intentionally hadn't listened to the show as it made her too nervous. 
She knew she'd hear about it the next day. Greg quietly walked through his home, ensuring his children were well. He smiled, as did Pauletta when he covered her bare shoulder with the blanket she'd wrapped herself in prior. How was it? Pauletta asked without opening her eyes and without losing her smile. Great, Greg replied. I'll tell you all about it in the morning. Sounds good, she mumbled as she tugged at the blanket, this time pinning it beneath her chin. I can't wait, she mumbled once more. Far too awake with racing thoughts and feelings, Greg didn't even consider sleep. Rather, he walked over to the small electric bar, eclectic bar, his wife had recently purchased and placed in the corner of their living room. He poured himself a glass of Old Crow bourbon whiskey and smiled. His smile, the result of memorized comical insults cast out at his whiskey's expense by friends. No matter how he defended it, it's one of Kentucky's oldest bourbons, he'd say. President Andrew Jackson actually drank Crow's whiskey, Greg would tell others. President Harry S. Truman actually had his Oval Office whiskey bar stocked with it. With it, old granddad and old Forrester. Nothing convinced the naysayers. However, Greg was never one to care what others thought. So, old crow it was. Greg stepped out onto his front porch. The cicadas and frogs were in full rumble on the outskirts of his dark yard and in the swampland below his driveway. The sliver of a moon, like an eye in a finishing wink, made him think of her. Francis. Was she happy she'd been talked about all night? Was she furious? Greg took a long swallow of whiskey and walked from his front porch off into his yard. From there, he strode down to the gravel road below. The lightning bugs were both bright and voluminous, flitting and flickering all around. Greg walked and drank, feeling the warm numbing sensation offered up by the whiskey. One last mouthful by his mailbox finished up the bourbon. The euphorious frogs morphed with the cicadas as Greg lifted his eyes to survey the night sky. The stars above and lightning bugs became a single tapestry of undulating pulsing light. The flirting moon had slipped to sleep as Greg opened up his mailbox and placed his empty glass inside. Maybe he'd remember to bring it in with him later. Maybe he wouldn't. It wouldn't matter either way. Who killed you, Frankie? Greg whispered to himself as he scuffed the heel of his boot into the loose gravel at the base of his mailbox post. And just like that, with the whispered question just having barely escaped his whiskey-wet lips, a photo montage, frayed and ripped and burned in stark black and white, then in Las Vegas Technicolor, and then back again, and then upside down, and then crooked, and then slow, so very slow, was projected across the cognitive screen behind his eyes. And Greg saw Frankie as a teen, plying bright red lipstick to her pursed young lips. Frankie on her wedding day throwing a bouquet of flowers, devil may care. Frankie clapping her hands at a birthday party amid rose-red balloons. Frankie playing peekaboo with a spit-bubble-blowing baby. Then the images sped up, and the mental film in his mind took on sound, and new images joined the old. Greg saw Frankie clad in black, scaling the steps of a church for a funeral. Frankie holding her face in her hands as she wept. Frankie leaning her head back in laughter, not born of comedy but of pain. Then, to the film, 
the killing came. Greg saw the knife plunging cobra quick through the fabric of her dress and into her flesh. Then the images of her life, both happy and sad, took turns with the knife, and the mental film took on a life of its own when hundreds of clips and slivers of scenes and sounds filled the breaks and spaces between pictures until the film was as much a kaleidoscope as it was a movie, an explosion of audio and visuals from the past. The soundtrack was the voices from across the ages, voices of the dead, the living, songs, even American presidents. The movie rolled in Greg's mind as the night eclipsed him. The knife raised and fell, raised and fell, raised and fell. I did something! Frankie's tombstone without a date, then with a date, then without a date. Shazam! Shazam! Stop huffing and puffing like a damned old wolf. You hear me? You hear me? Lipstick clapping, church bells wedding, crying laughter, peekaboo. Slip the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Slip the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. We've been playing a game, a game, a game, a game. The knife raised and fell, raised and fell, raised and fell. There go our two fearless leaders. I mean, she's been killed. I mean, she's been killed. Beware, beware, beware. I did something. Crazy son of a bitch. Damn high heels and all wrestled a big black bear. A big black bear. A big black bear. Thrill Hill. Thrill Hill. Thrill Hill. I know things. It's witch's night. Walpurgis. Dogs are barking. 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 Frankie's tombstone without a date. Then with a date. Then without a date again. Green-handed. 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 The rattle and roll of Panhandle Pete. Clinked and clanked and clinked and clanked. The knife raised and fell. Raised and fell raised and fell. 25 lines in two days. 25 lines in two days. Lipstick, clapping, church bells, wedding, crying, laughter, peekaboo. Nosser, 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 Nosser. Sleeps right up there with them corpses and caskets. By God, by God, by God, the knife raised and fell, raised and fell, raised and fell. Slick naked bodies in the golf course pool, naked bodies in the golf course pool. Dogs are barking, 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 barking. I did something. This must be yours, Mr. Clark. Slip the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Slip the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Go to hell. Go to hell. Go to hell. I know things. The knife raised and fell. Raised and fell. Raised and fell. Stop huffing and puffing like a damned old wolf. You hear me? You hear me? 316 in the window. 316 in the window. It's witch's night. Walpurgis. Shazam! Shazam! I mean, she's been killed. I mean, she's been killed. The knife raised and fell. Raised and fell raised and fell. Frankie's tombstone with a date, without a date, and with a date again. She wore blue velvet lipstick, clapping, church bells, wedding, crying, laughter, peekaboo. Louie, Louie! 25 lines in two days. 25 lines in two days. There go our two fearless leaders. Beware! 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 Nosser! 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 Thrill Hill! Thrill Hill! Thrill Hill! Thrill Hill! Thrill Hill! I did something! I know things! The knife raised and fell, raised and fell, raised and fell. Lipstick clapping, church steps wetting, crying, laughter, peekaboo. Greg blinked, and the mad circus of words, pictures, and sounds were snuffed out like a candle. He inhaled deeply and looked toward his home. It's all I could possibly give you, Frankie. It's the best I could do. Greg mumbled as he walked slowly back toward his house. One last time, Greg turned around before going inside for the night. 
This time, as he looked off toward the dancing lightning bugs and glittering stars, there was no roaring river of scenes and sounds playing out behind his eyes. This time, it was just his father's face. Again, as he'd done a million times before, Greg envisioned his father standing in the Macon County fairgrounds just before dawn, as he'd done 20 years earlier after receiving the first solid tip in 30 years concerning the Francis Bullock cold case. Greg imagined again the vein of life his father had stood beside, the headlights heading somewhere, a web of lives he'd never know anything of. With his father's silhouette cast against the coming of dawn, still the sole image in his mind, a sudden chill slithered across Greg's shoulders and something moved off in the woods to his right. A deer, maybe? A possum? A skunk? Greg silently assumed. But something in the air made him doubt his common-sense assumptions. For Greg felt eyes upon him. Something was watching him. Of that he was certain. Temporarily abandoning, abandoning his path homeward, Greg strode off into the darkness to where his yard met a field with thick forest beyond to where the sound of movement had originated. At his yard's edge, in the bleak night, Greg stopped and listened. Whatever had been there was gone, or at the least had grown still. Several moments passed. The sound of Greg's own breathing looped into and out of the song of a distant creek, the cicadas and the concert of frogs. Given the relative stillness of the night and the late hour, Greg finally turned and walked back toward home. From his front porch, with one hand firmly grasping his doorknob, Greg looked back toward the yard's dark edge one final time. Were they out there? He wondered. Greg had read somewhere many years earlier that ghosts were like moths. Stories told about them were like flames. Greg often informed guests of his own tours that ghosts can be woken with a thought, that they lean in to listen to tales told of them. Was he right? Were they indeed there, standing invisible in waist-high grass on the outskirts of his yard watching him? Had they been pulled one by one through the mists of time as he told their tales to a late-night summer Southland? All the ladies and the lawmen, the town drunk, the suspects, the family, the friends, the killer, and Francis. Was Francis there as well? Again, a twig snapped in the darkness, and Greg smiled. He imagined them all bowing at the waist in graceful, noiseless unison, a southern Shakespearean cast of characters who played their parts with finesse and full steam, whose drama had closed with 50 years of rave reviews written on the pages of time itself. Maybe not every mystery is destined to be solved. It may be sufficient that the story gets told, that the show goes on, that the curtain gets to fall proper with some cold, tossed, metaphorical roses and a hint of distant applause from the seemingly empty theater that is life. Greg thought to himself as he closed the door, shutting the night out behind him and leaving the ghosts in the darkness at the yard's edge and the whiskey glass in the mailbox. A truly southern thing. <laughs>